can humans see something else other than their patterns in the day, of how they go about their day to step back enough to see that there actually is another potential where they might become a vessel of some kind for spirit to enter them. Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Susanna Hayes. Susanna is an American artist and educator. Um, she's currently working as a independent researcher advising the Entropy Entropy Institute. And recently, we became aware of you, Susanna, through a comment she made to one of our shows about uh, Gurdjieff and polyvagal theory. And so then we got in contact with you, and hopefully we will be discussing some of those subjects and your take on them. So to start out with, welcome to the show, uh, and it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome. Thank you both. So the show we did was on some of our kind of speculations on the connections between some of the material that we had been covering on the show and reading, specifically Gurdjieff and his exercises. We had uh, Joseph Azizi on a few times to, or a couple times, to talk about those. We were reading James Carpenter's First Sight Theory about uh, a psychological theory of psi phenomena, and then a book on, or influenced by, well, both, polyvagal theory by Stephen Rosenberg. Um, un, what was it called? Unlocking the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve, I believe, something like that. So we were talking about some of the, the connections between these various systems, systems and how they kind of fit together. Now, we, we weren't aware at the time, but we found out that years, you know, years previous to our show, you'd actually um, made some of these very topics the subject of your PhD dissertation and some papers you'd written. So maybe could you talk a bit about how you got into this and how you managed to find these different streams of material and put them together in the way that you did. Uh, yes. Um, we're talking really about um, a living lifelong question that I had when I was four. And uh, it came out just like in almost a burst because I really seem to have this question in me because it's now 50, 60 years, almost late years later, that I'm still not so much asking the question as wanting to know how to take responsibility. So there's quite an arc. And um, I asked, you know, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? And apparently, you know, children ask questions like that. But I'm emphasizing that this was a treasure hunt mm -hmm. in me, you know, that was real. And um, I'm surprised by that from time to time. Uh, but that's how it appears. And so there's a long circuitous route um, where certain things sort of seem to be part of the question and other things don't quite satisfy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would say 50% of my ordinary life was holding back for this can't be it, <laughs> you know, I mean, or that's not the whole story. Yeah. So though my father was a scientist and worked at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York 
Mm. Therefore, at four years old, I knew, you know, that Albert Einstein was a cool (laughs) character uh, in this question. Um, I will just fast forward to 1992, three, when I happened on the Gurdjieff work. And I say happened because it wasn't planned. It wasn't anything I was searching for specifically. I was literally just walking out of my dark room on Potrero Hill, where I was living and working at the time. I'm now in Santa Fe. Um, You know, and there was this movie theater that had been purchased by a group from Berkeley that was moving their group to Potrero Hill. And I was simply attracted to Achilleen a rug <laughs> that was hanging over the banister. And I asked um, someone um, who owned it because I knew that it was special. I knew it was a Senna rug from Turkey. So um, that's what I mean by treasure hunt. <laughs> it's because I'm somebody who is peripatetic. I walk, I'm engaged, I look for lived experience and have done that all my life. So um, one of the key principles of the Gurdjieff aphorisms that he gave was um, take the understanding of the East and the knowledge of the West and then seek. That was an aphorism in one of his books, Views from the Real World. And I think that that has shown up as a real truth now that I have also understood something about Stephen Porges's work. Mm-hmm. So why does that work is now the question. You know, why, what did Gurdjieff mean when he gave us that as a guide, one of his guiding principles? And I think that's why we've come together. Mm-hmm. Right, because, or did you want to finish your thought, or can I interject there? That's that's where we are, I think, at the moment. So, yeah, sure, right. whatever. Well, um, the I think one of the advantages, or, or one of the directions to go from that aphorism is that <laughs> there is, I think there's a tendency in a lot of either religious traditions or spiritual traditions to get... Um, kind of locked into a system, right? And to not uh, to then not seek for anything outside of it or anything new. Um, not to say that there's anything wrong with, uh, you know, with any of those systems per se, but there is constantly, I think, new understandings to be gleaned from new information. And so Stephen Porges is just one of those guys who has come up with, a, or who basically revolutionized or kind of re- I wouldn't say rediscovered, but discovered something new about the body, about the, the the autonomic nervous system that has so many implications and so many applications. And what so one of the reasons I appreciate your kind of transdisciplinary approach is that is the ability to to look at these disparate sources of information and to constant like the way I see it, it's it is almost like a, a continuous treasure hunt, like you said, that there are there are there are always new bits of treasure out there to to discover and then 
um, kind of integrate into one's developing view of the, the world and the way things work and the way we work, and then to apply them and see what can happen um, and what can be done with them. So I just wanted to give that perspective on, on how I see just the very, the, the very process of looking for information, seeking it out, and then kind of distilling those bits of you know, goodness, the, the essence out of that that can then be incorporated into a, 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 a worldview that can um, help foster one's own self-development and the, the spreading of that, the education of others. Um, did you have any comments on that or, or can you, do you want to get into some, um, some specifics about Porges's theory and how that kind of integrated into your own view of things? Well, I guess I first want to just reiterate the aphorism so that we really hear it. Mm. And it is take the understanding of the East and the knowledge of the West and then seek. So what does understanding mean and what does knowledge mean? And the, you know, as East meets West, I mean, we know that as a theme for many centuries between the principle of embodying knowledge, understanding knowledge, which means that you're underneath it, that, you know, it's, it's not just a thought, it's not just a philosophy, it's a practice. And then the knowledge or the research or the empirical methods for measuring and so forth. Uh, I think it was Gurdjieff's feeling that what appeared or was called mystical in the Eastern traditions is really not mystical. It's not even spiritual <laughs> per se. Uh, it is that we are looking for, in the West, we're looking for information that is rational from the mind, but, and can be measured. And, you know, Descartes and this mind-body split was basically that we can't be rational unless we have actually proven through science. And so we have a split. You know, we have a um, problematic discourse in the West and also in the East because they need to be unified. So we're studying the ideas in practice in situations of reality as an embodied practice when we take a principle and then we try to see, you know, when the rubber hits the road, how it actually goes. Mm -hmm. And we're at this point, as I point out in my paper that was given in Romania in 2018, it's a distillation of the doctorate, which, you know, it's 10 pages versus 144. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was meant to clarify simply what we've measured and how the view of evolution and that we are still evolving as humans. We are humans in quotation marks, you know, until we have begun to advance 
this unifying force of our phylogenetic history. And that's not new to science. I mean, Walter Hess brought that and Hewlings Jackson, even Leonardo da Vinci. Um, and we can even point to Goethe, which is the history in that short paper that I gave in Romania that gives this crucial timeline as to why we are now in front of not a metaphysical approach any longer, but stepping into the embodiment of practice. And there you go. I mean, you have a question. Uh, uh, well, uh, is our uh, working okay? Are you hearing me okay, Susanna? I am. Yeah. Okay, because I'm I'm not hearing myself on the headphones. But what I wanted to say is, I really appreciate what you just said about the idea of. You, you can even just take the, the mystical element out of all of this and look at it all from a very practical day-to-day uh, -day appreciation of uh, human potential um, and, and a basic understanding uh, combining the, the ideas of the East with the knowledge of the West of uh, just optimizing the functioning, the, the very normal built-in functioning of the human being with this knowledge of uh, vagal tone and consciousness and awareness and that uh, presented in such a way, I think um, it has the potential to be much more accessible to many people who might otherwise be more um, resistant to these ideas for uh, for not appreciating Eastern mystical ideas of uh, spirituality or or human growth or development. So, what you're doing, as I see it, is is bridging um, all of these kinds of seemingly uh, separate ideas. And, and saying, no, look, th this is actually uh, the elephant being described from all these various uh, positions around the elephant. Uh, all of these guys are basically, uh, and gals, are, are, are saying or describing the same um, situation or, or, or state of humanity or the individual uh, you know, via their own perspective, but it all kind of, con you, there's this congealing of, of knowledge. It, it's like a synthesis that um, I think people can, can use for themselves in, in saying, if I'm able to pay attention to uh, my awareness and my vagal tone and, and these ideas, I can, in potential, bring myself to a, a higher state of functioning and, and in better um, relationship, perhaps, with uh, the people I'm surrounded by, with my community, with uh, ultimately, the hope is, the world at large. Right. So the sphere that um, I use to bring these together the East and the West, 
the phylogenetic history with the Eastern traditions of practice um, was the transdisciplinarity movement, which centers in Paris. And it was something that occurred in the 70s when quantum field, cybernetics, different things were moving through Paris where education and the riot of 68 at the Sorbonne and you know education was being questioned for its 17th century model and not moving to contemporary time. And so it's taken over hundred years, almost 150 years to digest some of these discoveries from Darwin, um, Einstein and the quantum field. And there's now a resurgence because technology is taking over the measuring. It may actually be putting science to the side. <laughs> so these are all real concerns and of making sure that we're understanding embodiment because the speed of technology is going to take us further and further away if we don't get this human aspect taken care of, you know, in terms of educating people as to not just know thyself, but know thy biological self. Mm -hmm. so I totally appreciate, you know, the emphasis on the pragmatic principles here that are simply observable, verifiable. They're not a belief system. We inherited them. We didn't ask to be born, as Terry Lindahl is famous for saying. Um, we have a inborn natural default system, which Hewlings Jackson makes clear. And Leonardo observed, and of course, Galen, who was doing the anatomy description called actually the vagus, the reversive nerve, before it was called the vagus. I mean, it was known to be a long wandering 10th cranial nerve in the body, but what they couldn't understand um, or what they needed to observe, and this is when it was cadavers, you know, not uh, x-rays <laughs> uh, or imaging, they actually watched to see how this bi-directional system functioned, whether or not the impulse was coming from the heart or from the gut. Mm. And the fact that it actually started in the middle ear and, you know, that it's lodged, you know, it's a two, you know, it's, it's, back of this part of your trigenital nerves of your jaw and in the facial muscles. So the short history that I gave in the paper about Darwin and facial expressions and different things concerning vocalization and moving these chords and the prosody of voice and for instance, chanting and the things that were going on in the Eastern traditions that Porges identifies as being all vagal exercises. Mm -hmm. They didn't probably understand exactly what the science was. And science doesn't understand that it required a practice. Right. And then the dogma started to come in to interfere with both. Mm -hmm. um, do it in remembrance of me, do it for someone else, you know, that, you know, like, so this belief system made the whole thing opaque. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
yeah, so here, yeah. So here we can actually um, now look at what the West required, which was proof, and then see how it goes when you actually try something specific, like an exercise during the day, mm-hmm. where you can begin to see what is naturally occurring as friction against the harmonic tempos that might otherwise be there if one had vagal tone developed in one's system. Hmm. I wonder. One more thing. I mean, I'm just saying that the the crucial part of this is that reaching any higher higher normative levels of being in education, in diplomacy, in politics, in anything, this duality that we live where we're in a fight fight or like or dislike or any of these dualities that are otherwise catastrophic in our decision making we are we are we are not able as humans to resolve our conflicts yeah without this and this without this practice essentially Right. So, um, well, that there's a couple different directions I wanted to go with that. One, just the what you mentioned about the the chanting and the a lot of these, you know, what, what uh, in the in the terms of our discussion today, what we might call Eastern practices that are, are rooted in a kind of uh, an understanding that isn't um, that doesn't have that that Western analytical kind of. Um, you know, take it apart and understand each bit and why it works. Doesn't have that element to it. Um, well, that's that's in contrast, like you said, to the just the the academic papers that lay everything out, but that don't have the practice. And then I, I just wonder. Um, this might be. I don't know if this has been done before. Maybe it has, but it might be a good research project to to measure some of the the efficacy of certain practices with and without understanding now i know this would be hard because uh or with or without the the knowledge that goes into you know the the scientific kind of explanation for why things happen because if you look at a a group a group that's been doing like practices for their entire lives well first of all they're going to be better at them because they have more practice um no pun intended but in a in a western group um, or just a group of people who aren't familiar with the practices. I wonder if there's any benefit to having the 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 scientific understanding of it in addition to the practice, as opposed to just the practice itself. Um, I'm just throwing that out there. That's just something off the top of my head. But what what that leads me to is that one of the advantages to taking this approach is that you mentioned this history that we've it's kind of like been a catastrophic history for the 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 modern world and and that that stems from this this western scientific understanding that we have this dualism that we've been separated from from the practical from the practice from the the from the things that would allow us to overcome a lot of the the problems that we face personally and interpersonally on all levels and so it's almost but it's this approach is almost taking a backdoor towards um, making things better by utilizing our very kind of scientific framework and understanding to 
then show that this actually has a benefit. This is grounded in science. It's something you can you can feel justified doing because you can place it in your um, kind of Western philosophical tradition mindset and then um, go from there as opposed to just um, converting to a different religion and kind of forgetting about using your your critical like rational mind so so I know that um, well just one more comment on this on this um, this kind of processor dynamic when you read Porges's work um, like I read polyvagal theory back when it back when it came out in the book form, because I, I hadn't read any of his papers before then, but then they were collected all into that volume. And it's really hard to read, right? It's really, um, it's really dense academic writing, and uh, sometimes you have to read. Luckily, it's repetitive. You know, in each paper, bits get repeated, so you can, you can kind of get it. But, but um, it's not go- a book like that isn't going to get anyone to, um, or isn't going to get very many people to implement polyvagal theory into their own lives, right? It takes... Uh, it takes someone to then translate it into a a a more practical teaching method and then give it that way so what if if you if you're okay with it i want to kind of move the direction move the conversation in the direction of actually implementing some of these things um maybe can we do that for for polyvagal theory, maybe we can. Maybe could you talk about just some of the very basics understandings of polyvagal theory and how that actually can be integrated in in the life of someone who isn't already aware of it? Uh, yes. Uh, so, if I can first summarize, I think one of the things that you're asking as a very good specific question is, why do we need to have the ideas or the principles or the understanding of the science? Can't we just sit on a pillow and meditate (laughs) or do um, join a chorus, start developing prosody of voice and learn to exercise, you know, different Mm -hmm. parts of the vital organs. Um, this is where the Gurdjieff ideas are probably, I mean, I think completely unique, not that he didn't, he gathered them from different parts of the Eastern traditions and then the pre-Socratics and others obviously agree with a great deal of the material as well. So to have a philosophy is an important step in developing a point of view. Mm-hmm. And you can read all kinds of different philosophies. And I can, I mean, I'm mostly speaking to you now at this moment from exactly what occurred with my own question and how things began to finally turn around. And I haven't written an autobiography <laughs> about this, but you know, there's, there were some very good directions that I received from certain individuals. I was wondering what I could become. And, you know, it was either going to be Terry in his inimical, humorous way, you know, well, baked potato, you know, you can become a baked potato or, you know, you can evolve your being. So 
um, in the Gurdjieff ideas, nothing is separated. It's the movements, it's the principles and the ideas, and it's the sharing of what actually occurs when I try an exercise to see how my organism, my being is in relation to either the question, the principle or an activity, an everyday activity. Um, we are a laboratory for this process based on what we might hear as an idea, what we might try as an experience and how others that we share process with might contribute to seeing what I deny, what I, what I, what I automatically refuse. So these defense patterns that come from our somatic biological apparatus that are earlier brain systems that are meant to learn to become repurposed or unified with our neocortical capacity. Porges gives us some very good biological, physiological, biopsychological principles, which if you have struggled to understand the Gurdjieff ideas, from my point of view, after all the years working to understand why I didn't remember basic principles when I was in motion, is that they're, they happen too quickly, they happen too fast. You have, according to Hewlings Jackson, a split second before the system itself just defaults to the lower mm -hmm. brains. So together, you know, it's not really even a bootstrap philosophy. You know, it, we're talking about recognizing and recognizing as I work to see that it's not something I need to blame myself for, but understand that this organism has to make an effort to acquire and advance what naturally is friction against what I like and my habits and my potential to find and work between in a new space where I might get a glimpse of a way of not going with just what automatically goes on. And uh, it's a time-based, you know, chemical. We have a toxicness in us that's coarse and we're working to refine. And this is chemistry. Well, one of the terms that you used a short while ago and is included in your paper, Nature as Discourse, Transdisciplinary and Vagus Nerve Function, is uh, the sense of bidirectionality, that we are both, through our efforts against or, um, or awareness of our friction, uh, or the conscious um, exercising of our vagus nerve, 
via breathing or chanting or uh, whatever mode one chooses, uh, that, that there is this effort to act upon our own physiology and the, the physiology and its, its own natural response in turn on our awareness. So it's this kind of, and I'm, I'm just working out this idea now and, and I'm, uh, hoping that it can be fleshed out further, but there's this kind of, um, positive reinforcement or a positive feedback loop, which seems to be suggested here in, uh, in first being aware of our physiology and our, the way that our vagus nerve has all of these different, um, impacts on our organs and on our awareness and our brains and hearts. And as a result of, of working on it, in a sense, we get the, the benefits. There's a, there's a kind of a, um, uh, I don't know if cleansing is the right word or a to- tone, uh, but it, it just seems to be, uh, it makes for a greater um, potential. Uh, and, and health and expansion, it may be is another word that may be used. But I wonder, uh, Susanna, if you might uh, expand on that or, or help me say what I think it is I want to say there. Well, so the, the Entropy Entropy Institute in San Francisco, um, we are trying to establish um, how the humanities as a whole in the university environment could begin to understand that a course is needed in this to begin with. (laughs) That um, we are not saying we should change the disciplines per se, you know, but everything that's being studied has to adapt to some of the prince, you know, the principles that are that we're discussing right now, as a whole entity. That the mind that's going to get hold of any idea is going to process it with the mind that it that it has, which isn't sufficient at this point, unless one has also incorporated an understanding of where that perception has already formed, already has its opinions, already has its judgments, already think it knows. And even myself right now speaking, you know, I, I have a lot of my own, what I'm saying in reserve in an observation because words, you know, they're a tricky business, language itself. And so this is a semiotic change as well um, that we're evolving through. Our language might begin to also change. So as a species, we have still a great deal in front of us to understand, but if it isn't understood through these principles of my ordinary habits, my preconditioned opinions, uh, 
if we're not open in our way of working through how our environments need to change. I mean, one of the very specific things that Porges's work outlines for us is that unless the body feels safe, unless we are able to communicate in safe environments, which you know universities are not on the whole, they're highly competitive, they're, they're um, rigid in creative approaches. Um, we have autocratic department heads and you know I mean I don't need to I mean we've all had our experience but most of everything that I've learned actually learned has come from the fringes of the university and I was an older student returning so I had what Gurdjieff said I had the understanding of the east that I brought with me to the university environment and learned to experience the trepidations of what the university was about. So until we have safe environments, the body is not in a situation that can learn. And what we're also trying to invert, I think are the principles that all that the study through science goes either into uh, therapeutic prescription drugs, which also is a huge, you know, issue within just treating those who are in trauma, those who are living in borderline conditions that end up in terrible circumstances of which Porges has dedicated his life towards. But now we see that it comes from the leadership. So we need to train and to teach people who are going to go into the field of education, into the field of um, early childhood. What do mothers need to know is mm -hmm. basically the question we started with when we started the Institute in San Francisco. So that um, we're not backtracking, trying to always correct what's already been damaged yeah. in the potential. And now we have an environmental situation, which is full of its criticalness. And so that you can see that um, across the board, we take it out on the natural world of which we're part of. So it doesn't, it's not very pragmatic, is it? <laughs> um, no. right. But that's when you mentioned uh at the beginning of that answer that you gave, you mentioned, uh, you know, the need for a course in these sorts of things. And then you also mentioned the, um, you know, words can always can only go so far. And then there's there's really a lot of damage done to so that it's harder to it's ve it's very hard to reach most adults because they have their ideas about everything already. They they aren't most adults aren't very open to new ideas and uh in just anything new to be introduced into their lives. So, but when you first mentioned the course, that the the first thing I was thinking was to start as young as possible. I was thinking, well, we need, yeah, we need courses in like elementary school, in the 
or well and even before like you you, you went even further and said well it should start with with mothers right mothers should be aware of certain certain principles certain practices certain things to to understand and to look out for because we we really come into this world um, well, we come in totally unprepared, and then we realize that the the people around us are just as unprepared as we are, even though they're, you know, they've got a lot more experience than we do. They're they're our parents, they're our teachers. Um, so, uh, right, th- so that's need, go ahead. We need a, we need an owner's manual. Yeah, that you know is clearly substantiated now by the empirical um, measurements that were required by, you know, the authorities, let's say. And then of course there were those of us who were artistic and creative as children that couldn't respond to that authority. And so, you know, we suffered a certain emotional deprivation when we were young um, that I can attest to from having taught now in the art schools, um, the inner life and emotional life of creative children particularly are, well, everyone is, you know, we could speak of the intellectual not being able to feel, and we could speak of the emotional not being able to construct their thoughts in a way that can be uh, accepted by somebody who wants reason mm-hmm. and the moving centered type that is very quick within the body to perform and be athletic and to be strong and to be capable of doing many things but not able to register how their tempo works with others and so forth. So we are mostly gifted in one direction or another and the possibility of becoming bi-directional with being able to feel your thoughts and think your feelings right there becomes a step. And so um, these principles are teachable and in order to have them established within a broader community from esoteric practices, let's say, you know, the way they've been viewed as mystical and so on, because we don't need to say that any longer. We we have the proof of the system. Uh, Contemporary science now gives us the pathway, shows us the vagal pathway. And that our fear-based activities are real to us until we learn to negotiate in a a new perspective of what else might be possible. Well, I'm just looking at your paper here and how you go back through some figures in history, as was mentioned earlier in the show, uh, and cite some works by Darwin and uh, John Hewlings Jackson, uh, Paul McLean, and the, uh, the the well-known Stephen Porges. And it seems to me, especially with Porges, that you know you you read what 
he's presented uh, with his research and and certain um, and you've made these certain connections to fourth way thinking and and uh, <clears throat> and, and personal growth uh, using his his work. And there's a tendency I, I find with some ideas to think, oh, we really have it now. It can't get any better than this. If if most people understood this, then we, you know we'd we'd reach our uh, a state of um, equilibrium at, at the very uh, at the very best. Um, but this is the one. <laughs> It, it and it is it, it it's really it brings so many things together and i guess this is um this this brings me to a question uh which may include some uh some some other ideas that you've been thinking about maybe not i don't know but i i wonder um in a in a more perfect world susanna if if all of these ideas were assimilated uh, as as this is a attempt to do, what what do you imagine might be um, the next level of development for mankind? Um, it's kind of a it's kind of a broad question and maybe maybe difficult to answer. Um, but what do you th- what do you see as the next uh, who what is the next level of thinking on all of this as as all of this gets integrated in a in a world that doesn't have uh authoritarian universities that doesn't have reactive people who are close-minded to taking on new information where where does all of this go in a in a more uh constructive and open-minded and uh and and perfect world Um, well, we're a long way from Nirvana, (laughs) Um, but there are some, obviously, some very key things that would make a significant uh, difference. Uh, We're speaking of, ultimately, that why are we here, which was what I asked my father. And to speak of evolution and Darwin as he gave me the Beagle and his travels, you know, the book. (laughs) Um, Why wasn't that a satisfying answer for me? Uh, You know, um, only. So we're meant to evolve and the evolution of consciousness was something that I was interested in. But why are we here? Um, The answer is that um, I have a purpose. There is an organic film on the earth of which I'm part of as nature foresaw. And I meant to be vibrating at a certain rate, a finer rate than I was born with. My work, my effort is to become something so that our solar system is helped by its purpose in keeping life going. So 
as I learned to move through my own personal story and narrative of this thing and the other thing that happened, um, I could be asking this larger question. That would be a tremendous achievement for humans to begin to recognize that they're here for a short period of time and for generations to come after them. We carry a responsibility in that regard. Um, some people won't get to that perception of a worldview until they begin to see the authority inside themselves. And so when we speak in a, you know, the authoritative education, um, we need to be taught. This doesn't come naturally. We need to understand this system. It's right that we have struggled to find this reality in the Western world. We can intuit many, many things and understand that something's not quite right about war or <laughs> genocide or you know some of the really egregious things that could still happen today mm -hmm. and are happening today even in the 21st century you know where have we evolved to what is this struggle about well it, there really is a struggle i mean we're talking about a very um thick medium in our beings that develop what we call the seven deadly sins. So our institute is setting a bar for a project that shows visually as a art exhibition that is the gestation history and potential of humankind, which Terry Lindahl has beautifully created. It's on permanent view at the Institute. Of course, we're semi-closed given the pandemic, but I think by appointment now, people can come to see that. Uh, we would like to have that become a major exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in New York or at the De Young, which is across the way from the Academy of Sciences so that we can begin to really look at the phylogenetic story mm. that humans carry you know, how you go into those science academies and, you know, you see the evolution of the ape to man and so forth. But there really, there isn't a taxonomy that's been made visual <laughs> for the general public. I mean, this is a major, major, big story that's been left out, um, you know, since the mm -hmm. ascent of man. We really haven't had an exhibition like this. Mm -hmm. So that's available to us now. And Porges, Stephen, Stephen Porges came and viewed the exhibition. Hmm. There are conversations that have been recorded and transcribed. And these are the materials for Stanford University and the humanities department, or you know, uh, wh whoever is willing to look at the pre-Socratic history that was part of say St. John's College here in Santa Fe that teaches these very early understandings before art and science were separated, before art, science and religion were separated, where alchemy was understood. Uh, we can now go back, in other words, 
to these prehistories that had all the very, you know, in the timeline of humanity's search. Um, and so we have put this together. I mean, this is what our institute has been working on for the, I mean, Terry for the last 50 years and for me, 30 years. Hmm. So it's a, a very important history yet to be told. Hmm. That sounds great. Um, does that have, does that tie into what you were talking about earlier about um, possible courses? Like, was that more of a, a an idea that uh, that you just think needs to be implemented, or have you guys actually um, like developed like material for for teaching to young mothers or to or to students? Like, where are you in the in the actual development of any of those materials, if that's what you're doing? Right. Well, we have the treatise of um, this is a harmonics of unity treatise, which is now has been translated into Portuguese and Spanish and uh, it's available on Amazon, which gives the overview. Okay. The biggest overview. And then we have a um, program initiative, which is, you know, something which we would like to review with universities that are looking for a way to um, establish a core curriculum that would be blending an otherwise divisive or, you know, fragmented approach to education from the point of view of what the humanities generally suggests it's educating um, students with that fall short of the purpose of, of why we're studying what we study. Um, if we're looking at um, the humanities from the point of view of becoming more human, we need all the information of the biology department, the technology people, the science, the art, you know, the religion groups to come together for a central purpose of evolving our species to adapt. And therefore it needs to become also an experiential practice. It needs to be something that one can observe in a safe environment to recognize that what they think they know is not actually occurring in the moment, it's coming from memory or from rote learning, which are facts and information, but are not part of an experiential understanding of how I need to learn to take responsibility for my own actions. It, it won't come from a ruler <laughs> uh, or a punishing system or you know even our legal you know those those are becoming just economics of disregard for what the real problems are well i haven't seen any of your artwork yet uh susanna but um the idea that you would uh conceptualize these um these uh, these ideas into a 
visual representation uh, could, and I'm sure this was part of the intention, uh, could help people to grasp or ascertain uh, these ideas in a in a in a very different way. It just sounds like a very creative way of making these ideas accessible. And um, there have been a number of, of paintings and, and things I know that I've seen over the years that have expanded my conception of something uh, that that opened my uh, my thinking to the possibility that oh maybe you know maybe energy exists in this way or you know maybe uh, you know the, these kind of ephemeral I- ideas that are sometimes difficult to uh, to describe um, and to define so I I can only imagine because I like I said I haven't seen your artwork yet but uh, it okay. just seems I need to correct you, uh, just that, you know, this is Harold Terry Lindahl's art. Uh, yes. He, he is, um, he was trained as an architect. He was influenced by the organic school of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, his teacher was Bruce Gaw. Um, he studied the laws of sacred geometry. These principles that are in architecture then became his study in his triptych series, reciprocating triptych series, which if you go to his website, haroldterrylindahl.com, you can see the whole trajectory of this project, which um, is um, a life's work studying objective art. What it, what it means to move from um talent which many artists have a great deal of talent um to begin looking at what we could actually have as a radiating force of education towards our human condition i mean this is what's unique about art it could be about anything and be about for art for its own sake. But if we're coming to principles of ideas that would actually transpire into culture, um, we might even be able to work through methods of appreciation that sees somewhere on a scale where where my own creative evolution could contribute to the, you know, the body of work that started with cave drawing. What was cave drawing about? And where are we today? Um, you know, that that in itself is a very interesting question for an art history department mm-hmm. to look at from the point of view of why do we create? Um, which has, you know, lots of books have been written about it, but I'm saying go back again now, look from the principles of what or just is telling us about our biology. Take the science seriously within the scope of um, what was that first inclination to draw an animal on a cave wall? I mean, my own from my own perception of 
what I experience when I've processed these ideas, the thought occurred to me in an interview that I did with an art historian, Dr. Peter Sells and Terry back in 2011, before we knew of Porges's work actually. Um, I had this impulse that came from I don't know where, but it was that um, there was enough in the Neanderthal, you know, the position of man becoming man from animal that it saw enough of itself not as animal to draw an animal. I mean, stick figures of humans were being drawn, but there must have been a kind of aha moment there where man could see himself as separate from animal in order to take that crayon and draw. So that's a separation. Now, can humans see something else other than their patterns in the day, how they go about their day to step back enough to see that there actually is another potential where they might become a vessel of some kind for spirit to enter them. That is a jump from Porges's material to something beyond behavior and social discourse where one might actually be able to receive impressions where our creative force can then manifest to its full potential. Mm. I mean, that's the, that goes beyond what Porges's material actually, I mean, everything else can move from a gyre. That's what he's saying. From understanding how the Vegas learns to discern given a period of space or pause between reaction and real thought, something that's not coming from memory, neuroception from my chemical makeup, but I actually have what's called as you've brought vagal tone. Um. Just a, a slight diversion on the topic of cave painting. I'm just wondering if you've read, if you've, uh, if you're familiar with the work of, now I can't remember the author, but one of his books is called Inside the Neolithic Mind. And the other one is, um, is the one on the Paleolithic cave paintings. I can't remember what that one what that one's called, but um, I think his name's like David something Williams or something, but um, you'll find him if you, if you just search inside the Neolithic mind, but his, his idea, um, he looks at all of these paintings from the, from the perspective of um, altered states of consciousness, not in the sense of like hallucinogens or anything like that, but just um, kind of more of a, a shamanic perspective. And, those those books kind of kind of blew me away, um, um, and I, I just I'd recommend checking them out for uh, an additional like perspective on that on that shift from that shift where we actually became, you know, what we know of, what we think of as human back then, and uh, I'd recommend. We, we would ahead. like we would definitely like to be having the institute. Uh, we would definitely like to be having these conversations with people who are deans of universities, mm. deans of humanities departments, 
to begin to put together in conversation and dialogue the real implications of what we're what we're able to discern at this at this point um, how how there really is no point to continuing all these separate disciplines of action until we look at what is viewing what what um, perceptions are guiding the decision makings that are going on that are obviously keeping us in a horizontal predicament mm. and the transdisciplinarity movement in itself has to think this way because their principles their philosophy the approach of of the third or the missing third or the hidden third or however we refer to this potential this third force this this third possibility that comes from the two um, we need to look at the implications of where we're obviously going to just repeat and continue on, on the same and I think Yvonne just mentioned the idea of energy I mean we are wasting energy we are inefficient as individuals as our offices and you know everything that we're doing during the days you know where if we don't take the regard of these principles um i mean that's a, it's a really big statement um to step back and recognize how we have this wrong mm -hmm. um and um we're, we're losing our ground now, and it's more evident than ever to a larger population. So that's just another reason why we feel that this no longer has to stay within sort of esoteric boundaries, limits, yeah. um, that it's time now. And this is what I think Gurdjieff would agree that science has met, I mean, he was alive when Hewlings Jackson made the Croonian lectures. He could have heard those, he could have seen those, but um, he was, you know, I mean, he uses the word evolution as a central word. So teaching evolution in the schools has been a battle in itself um, that still goes on in parts of our country. Right. Um, but now that we have the full evolving principles of our adaptation, our own personal adaptation, uh, it needs to be part of the systems view thinking, which are, you know, people like Richard Capra, people who did films like Mind Walk, where you have the three conditions of the scientist, the poet, and the politician trying to work together. We need Oprah. <laughs> we need people who can broadcast this very, very simple, I mean, I'm happy that it's happening on a garage <laughs> recorded radio interview. It could be no better place, mm -hmm. really. But the signals need to be out there. And that's why the exhibition is very important as well, because that's what art can do. It can be the signal to humanity 
to begin to appreciate that all the years of study and research have come to something and we better heed it at this point. Um, and that's the only reason why I'm taking this risk uh, this morning to speak to you because it does step out of all of our boundaries. Mm -hmm. If it's science, if we're transing to trans disciplines, we're talking about moving beyond. And science has had this history of wanting to do something for humanity, but it was caught in, I mean, David Bohm had to leave the country. Um, you know, I mean, he, um, the quantum field that he was trying to resolve between the theory of relativity. Those papers were hidden by Oppenheimer. And only just in the last year has the Pari Institute in Italy broadcast to thousands the infinite potential film, which tells that history. Mm. So um, our ability to find a new tempo within each of our beings is the work of what an individual can do. And then collectively as a whole, humanity can serve its purpose. Great. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a good note to, to close on Susanna. Um, well, thank, so thank you for being on with us and thank you for talking and for, for doing this Your I think your, your first interview, at least on YouTube. And, um, it, it's been a pleasure talking to you, but before we, before we end, I want to ask you, um, because, um, you've come on, you've come on here to talk about these ideas. You've got the exhibition going on at the Institute. Um, you also have a, a conference that's coming up. Could you tell us a bit about that conference and some of the details about it? Yes, um, the transdisciplinarity community that is centered in Paris um, is the organization that is sponsoring with three or four other organizations in a world Congress. Um, on October 30th, they will be starting a 42 week virtual um, weekly program with people contributing papers and activities towards their specific areas of concern, whether or not it's the environment or education itself or um, indigenous people, or, I mean, there's a list of speakers that goes the whole gambit of areas that need to trans cross to, um, new understandings. Um, it's based in Mexico City because of the pandemic. It's virtual. Uh, the um, How do I convey the uh, registration for that? Um, can I do that with yeah, you well, afterwards or will you post it? Uh, yeah, I can put I can put details in the show description. So if you if you send me whatever links and whatever text, you know, information it's relevant, I can put it in the show description. So our institute is sponsoring one of the weeks. It's in February. Uh, it begins on the 30th of October with um, Basarab Nicolesco, um, mm. the man who 
wrote the manifesto um, of transdisciplinarity. It's um, something which presents the theoretical ideas of Romanian philosopher Stephen Lupasco, Franco, Romanian, and the third potential moving beyond dialectic. And we say moving beyond because we mean we are including it, but we're also establishing a third. So it's not that we're doing away, but we're actually including the third potential here, which um, isn't trans, it, I mean, it isn't interdisciplinary. It isn't about, it's about integrating, but it's, it's about a synthetic approach to all the disciplines. So it's not multidiscipline, it's, it's actually thinking in terms of what problems are needing to be solved in the world and working from there back about what knowledge we need to have. So, um, I mean, there are people like E.O. Wilson who've brought this idea of consilience um, where the humanities would have a way of educating the whole rather than parts and I mean, there are any other number of different models that are out there, um, but this is the community that is trying to take action. And we have UNESCO as one of the partnering groups. We have CTRANS, which is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And we have the uh, Mexico City Anthropology Museum and Paris working together. So it's a very large community of world effort. In yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, looking forward to it. And you've got uh, just so so our viewers know. Um, I believe Joseph Aziz is going to be speaking in that week that uh, that you guys are putting on, right? In, yes, in he February. is. Okay, great. Well, yeah, we'll and, include. The... And Harold Terry Lindahl oh, and Stephen Gorgeous. Um, ah, yes. It's going to be um, pretty much laying out. I hope what we would like for humanities departments to adopt. Great. But of course that'll take years probably, yeah. but um, if, if we have a sufficient number of people interested in what we're doing, it would help move things along um, in the Bay Area and in smaller maybe university settings like St. John's College that already has libraries established and you know things that, um, would be harmonious with the art exhibition at the um, cultural museums in this country. Cool, so. great. All right, well, thanks for the details, Susanna. And thanks again for, for joining us today and, uh, and sharing Thank with you. us and talking with us. It's a real Thank pleasure. You. Thank you both. Okay, take care. Thank you.